Apostle John said he saw a vision. And there were myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And they all said, praise the Lamb who is slain. Because he has called out people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. And so when we lay down in the grave, we will not stop singing. Numbers 31 and 32. Our study of numbers will come to an end next week. Insert crying sound effect right there. All the main stories have been told. All the older generation has died except Moses and Joshua and Caleb. And God has been patiently leading his people through the wilderness. And the story of these 40 years is that God is faithful to his people and he's looking for people to be faithful to him. And it's the same story that that is really all of human history. God is faithful to his people and and he's looking for people to be faithful to him. And these two chapters that we're going to look at today are are preliminary episodes to what's going to take place next in the history of Israel, which is taking the land of Canaan. And in order to take the land of Canaan, there has to be a battle, and there has to be full participation. So that's what these two chapters are about. So let's read, uh, beginning in chapter 32, and I'll read verses 1 through 15. This is the word of God. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elialah, Sebom, Nebo, and Beon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land... They discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from the twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. For they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people." There is a fight that has to take place for the believer, for the people of God. And God expects full full participation in the fight against the enemy. So as God's people, God expects us to engage in the battle against the enemy. That's chapter 31. And he expects for everyone to be involved in the battle. Full participation. That's chapter 32. So first, God expects his people to engage in battle. Chapter 31. 
God expects his people to engage in battle. Here in verses 1 through 12, we see the vengeance of God on Midian. The battle we need to recognize, first of all, is God's battle. It's Look at um, verse, the end of verse 1. This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes... I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. 31, verse 2. Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. So notice the end of verse 3 there. It is the Lord's vengeance. It's not Israel's idea to enter into a battle against Midian. But it's God's idea. And, and what God tells to Moses is that, Moses, this is going to be your last act before you uh, go on into your fathers, before you are dead. That's what the end of verse 2 is talking about. Before you're gathered to your people, it's just a euphemism for death. So Moses, this is your last act of, uh, last opportunity for faithfulness to me before you die. And, and in verses 3 through 6, God demands that every tribe be involved, that 1,000 military men from each tribe are involved, no matter what, how large your si- the size of your tribe was, each one had to, to bring 1,000 men. And the reason for the battle was because God was judging Midian. Now, if we think back just to chapters 22 through 24, Midian was a key factor in Israel sinning against God. Chapters 22-24 describe the story of Balaam and Balak. Balaam is the wicked prophet who convinced King Balak of Moab, uh, or he actually was convinced by Balak, to, to try to get Israel to sin against God so that they would be cursed. Unfortunately for Balaam, he couldn't get Israel cursed. So instead, he convinced the people of Israel and the people of Moab to enter into an immoral relationship, and Midian was involved in that process. In fact, Midian was part of the original group of messengers that King Balak had sent to go hire Balaam. And so because Midian was involved in this sin and in compelling Israel to commit immorality and adultery, uh, immorality and idolatry, I should say, that um, God was going to judge them. Notice in verse 12 here, talking about why God is judging them. They brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camps of the plain of Moab, which are by Jordan. Uh, That's actually not the verse I was looking for. That's talking more about what happens after they win the battle. Um, uh, Verse 7, So they made war against Midian just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. And we'll see later on in the text why God is is judging Midian. But first, we need to recognize that this is God's battle. This is not something that they came up with on their own. This is not something that they're trying to carry out their personal vendetta or the problems that they have with Midian. This is God's battle, God's vengeance. The people of Israel are simply the conduit or the instrument, the instrument that God's using. In verses 13 through 24, we see the need for a full ban. This is talking about where when in, especially we see this in Joshua where a city was was um, was destined for destruction that that meant not complete annihilation but they were banned from God and in some cases it meant killing all the males but it didn't necessarily mean killing every single person and so what we need to recognize here is that Moses is what Moses recognizes and that is that that he knows why they're battling against the Midianites this is not a land grab This is not a power trip on the part of Israel. This is God's judgment. 
God's judgment being carried out on a nation who angered God. And if Moses allowed Israel to, to spare the immoral women, that's what we're going to see here in verses 15 through 18, then, then what would have happened to the rest of Israel? Look, look at verse 15. Let me just show you this. So they come back with the spoils and then also with the people who they didn't kill. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls have, who have not known man intimately spare for yourselves. So the idea here is that that these women were actually the cause of Israel's sin, or at least they were a conduit of, they were an influence towards Israel to sin against God. And God's saying, what happens if you allow them, Moses recognizes this and says to them, what happens if you allow them to remain in our camp? What's going to happen? Listen to Deuteronomy 20, verses 17 and 18, which is, here's the reason why God didn't want them marrying pagan women. It wasn't because of their nationality or their ethnicity. It was because of their defiance against God and their worship of false God. Deuteronomy 20, verses 17 and 18. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord has commanded you, so that they, these Midianites and and Canaanites, they may not teach you to do according to all the detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. You see, God knew something about how evil influences those who are good. When we come into a close relationship with the world, the normal pattern is not that the godless person becomes like us. That is not normal. That is supernatural. When a godless person becomes like us, they actually have to be given a new heart, right? Rather, the normal pattern is that the good person becomes like them. And Moses knew that. And so he says, you need to kill these women who were responsible for this sin. And then in verses 19 through 24, there had to be cleansing. Whenever there was the shedding of blood, there had to be ritual purity. And so after the battle, the men had to purify themselves for seven days. The final part of chapter 31 uh, describes the disbursement of the spoils in verses 25 through 54. The disbursement of the spoils. In some cases, when Israel would go into battle and come back, they would leave the spoils, or God would have them burn everything, or they would give all the spoils to the national treasury, which was uh, in the tabernacle and the temple. But in this case, God tells them to divide the spoils among the tribes. And, and they were to divide them in two ways. Look at verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, You and Eliezer the priest and the heads of the fathers' households of the congregation take account of the booty that was captured, both of man and of animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. So here, Moses, God recognizes something here um, through Moses and, and, and explains this to Israel through Moses, and that is that, that the soldiers are not the only ones responsible for the victory. In other words, if if only the soldiers were responsible for the victory, then who would take care of the animals while they were gone? Who would take care of all their resources while they're gone? I mean, any robber could come in and just take them. 
What about their family, their kids? What about their land that they had already possessed? And so God recognizes that, that both the soldier and the civilian are, are critical to the work of fighting in this battle. And so that's why he divides the spoils up into two. Not like you're sitting at home doing nothing, but they're doing all the work, so um, they get all the spoils. Instead, God splits them up in half. And then the people were supposed to take of that and give one five hundredth of it to the priest and one fiftieth of it to the Levites. And then in chapter 31, verses 48 through 54, the officers take a census and find that, amazingly, Despite this significant battle, all of Israel is accounted for. There are none who had died in this battle. Verse 49 reads, And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. So they've entered into a serious battle against a, a, a valiant enemy, and yet they came back without losing one. None of them died. Now, whenever a census was taken, Israel was to bring a half, a half shekel for each man that was part of that census. So that was part of God's expectation of them based on Exodus chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. So a half shekel for each person who was in battle. And we had 12,000 people in battle, so they should have brought, um, brought 6,000 shekels of, uh, of gold back to God as as a response, but notice how much they bring. They're supposed to bring 6,000, a half shekel for each person. But at the end of verse 52, it says that they brought 16,750 shekels. So almost one and a half times more than what they were supposed to bring. This is the equivalent of, of 420 pounds of gold altogether, or a half an ounce of gold per person, or $600 per person that was involved in this. This was more than what is requi- required of them for a total of $8 million in our our day. This is a lot of money that was going to be given to the Levites for the purpose of, of helping care for the worship of God. So, so we have um, God expecting His people to engage in battle. This is God's battle. Vengeance belongs to God. He expected them to, to put this nation specifically under a full ban and then disperse the spoils properly. In the second chapter... Chapter 32, we see that God expects His people to engage in battle with full participation. God expects His people to engage in battle with full participation. The reality is, is, that, is that whenever there is work, the work of God to do, there is an appeal, even by well-meaning people, there is an appeal to abandon God's work. And, and I would suggest to you that what we read about earlier, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 32, what Reuben and Gad are doing here is actually abandonment of God. And that's why Moses has to rebuke them. So let's look at their stated desire, and then I'll show you, uh, I'll give you three reasons why I think this is abandonment, or attempted abandonment, maybe a better way to put it. Verse 4. Here's Reuben and Gad, and they say to Moses, The land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. They said, If we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. So, notice what's going on here. There's no mention of them fighting or getting involved with their other ten tribes in, in this battle, this conquest of Canaan. Reuben and Gad were the professional shepherds of Israel. 
So naturally, the land that they wanted the most was the richest pasture land. They didn't want hills or fortified cities. Those don't help for raising cattle and sheep and so on. They wanted open fields and flowing streams. And the richest of Canaan was east of the Jordan, which is where Israel is right now. They haven't crossed over into the Promised Land. They're east of the Jordan. And and Reuben and Gad are kind of looking around and saying, man, our, our animals are doing really well this last month that we've been here. And it would be good for us to just stay right here. And you guys go on in the battle. That's fine. You can collect all and possess all that land. And you can see God work. That's great. But we're going to stay here. Would that be okay, Moses? We'll just plant ourselves right here. And I would suggest to you that this is abandonment of God's work. And there's three reasons why I say that. First, look at the end of verse 5. Notice what they say. Do not take us across the Jordan. So they have no intention of crossing the Jordan and getting their hands dirty in battle. Or bloody, maybe, a better way to put it. They don't want to get involved in the fight. Now, someone might read that and say, well, maybe they're just talking about don't give us any land across the Jordan. But I would suggest to you a second reason why I think this is abandonment, and that is because of Moses' rebuke. The rest of the chapter from verses 6 through, uh, or the last verses there, through 42, is essentially Noah, or, or Moses, excuse me, rebuking them. He rebukes them multiple times. And if this were a rebuke that, that, um, uh, that was unfounded or it was just assumed, then we would expect for Reuben and Gad to respond, to defend themselves. But what we're going to find in the rest of the chapter is that they don't defend themselves. And that, that's why this third reason is that I think this is abandonment, is when Moses rebukes them, they don't respond. They don't respond with a defense of themselves. Instead, they actually comply to Moses' expectation. In other words, if they were well-intentioned and planning on fighting, we, we're going to go across. But we're just saying, like, after we're done, we want to get back on the east side of the Jordan. Please give us this land. If that was their intention, they, they would stop Moses from his long uh, discourse about their sin and their abandonment. I mean, this is different from the end of Joshua, where these two tribes, along with half the tribe of Manasseh, they, they settle on the east side of the Jordan, and there they set up an altar on the east side of the Jordan. Now, the altar was only supposed to be in one place at, at that time. It was at Gilgal. And so the other nine and a half tribes see this, and they say, what's going on here? You guys are setting up a, 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 an altar to a false god. And, and the two and a half tribes actually respond by defending themselves, because that's not what they were doing. They say, no, actually, that's not what we're doing. Instead, we were setting up an altar of remembrance because we don't want our two and a half tribes and our children to one day down the road forget that we're part of the larger nation of Israel. We don't want to be excluded or secluded. And, and so we've set up a separate altar of remembrance. It's not an altar to, to do sacrifices or to, um, to worship a false god or anything or to go against God's prescribed means. And so in that case, they actually were defending themselves even though that they were rebuked. And in the, in the end, Moses and the rest of the people understood and they went their separate ways. But in this case here, when they're rebuked, these two tribes are rebuked, they don't respond with disagreement. So I would suggest, suggest to you that by their silence, they're showing that they actually did intend to abandon God's work. So what's so serious about this? I mean, what's so serious about abandoning God's work? I mean, in other words, if God expects full participation in the battle and 
you know, these two tribes don't participate. What's the big deal? I mean, don't we have a God, and didn't they have a God, who could save by many or by few? Right? Jonathan's, Jonathan's statement in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, when he's going up against the Philistines, his armor bearer saying, you sure we can handle all this? And he says, listen, we have a God who can save by many or by few. And so didn't they have the same God? Why do they need all 12 tribes? What's the big deal? I mean, God can save by few. Read the stories of Gideon and Samson. But, here, here's the point. God will not save by few when He has chosen to save by many. God will not save by few when He has chosen to save by many. And that's Moses' point to them. You, by God's command, are, must be a part of this battle. And yes, God could do it apart from you, but He's not going to. He waited around a whole generation for a group of people to trust Him. And now you're abandoning Him. And so in verses 6-42, through Moses tells them the danger of abandoning God's work. First, our abandonment of God's work discourages others from doing His work. Verses 6-19. through Our abandonment of God's work discourages others. Moses rebukes them in verse 6. In the middle of the verse, he says, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land? So, so this is going to bring discouragement. And you know how I know it's going to discourage the other ten tribes? Because of history. What happened the last time that a group of people went into the, the land and recognized that they couldn't do it? What happened? They came back and discouraged the whole generation of Israel, didn't they? That's what he talks about in verses 8 and 9. And so Moses goes on and says, listen, this is serious stuff for you to abandon God's work. Verse 10, the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old or upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And verse 13, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. And now Moses turns from his story back to the two tribes. And he says, Now behold, you, Reuben and Gad, you have risen up in your father's place. You are a brood of sinful men. And you add still more to the burning anger against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. In other words, you will be responsible for their deaths. two tribes abandoned their fellow tribes, then they would have abandoned God. And if they abandoned God, then God would wipe out the whole generation and wait for another generation to come along who would be faithful, who would trust Him. Remember the point of Numbers is that God is faithful to His people and He's waiting for people who will trust Him. And, and what Moses is reminding them is that this act of abandonment is an act of a defiance, rebellion against God. Well, in verses 16 through 19, we have good news. The two tribes agreed to fight, but they still wanted the land, so they kind of negotiated a deal. Listen, if we go into the land like we're supposed to, we recognize this is sin. If we go into the land, then can we still please have this land to the east of the Jordan? Because um, we weren't just making up this idea of having this land as a ploy to get out of fighting. We don't want to fight, but, but, but really we were wanting this land because we want this land. This is good land for us. 
And so our abandonment of God's work is a discouragement to other people who must engage in the battle. But secondly, our abandonment of God's work is a sin against God, verses 20 through 42. Now we've already seen this with Moses because he says in verse 14, Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place a brood of sinful men and, and, and add still more to the burning anger. So there, and the implication is your fathers were sinners by leading the rest of Israel astray, turning them to distrusting God. And by implication, you are doing the same thing. You're adding to the burning anger of God in, in the way that a person adds to the burning anger of God is by sinning. So we've already kind of seen that, but the rest of the chapter is, uh, says that a little bit more explicitly. So here, in verses 20 through 42, Moses agrees with their modified appro- uh, proposal and again warns them not to abandon their brothers in arms. And so he agrees in verses 20 through 22, and then he warns them again, show them the seriousness in verses 23 and 24. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. Build yourself cities for your little ones and sheepfolds for your sheep and do what you have promised. So Moses calls their abandonment a sin against God and their sin will not escape the judgment of God. Your sins will find you out. That is, God knows what's going on and He will surely judge you. That's the point of verse 23. So the men in verses 25 to 27 They reaffirm their commitment to fight. And then, for a third time, Moses warns them not to abandon the fight in verses 28 through 32. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar, the priest, and to Joshua, the son of Nun, and to the heads of the father's households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Moses said to them, If the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, everyone who is armed for battle, will cross with you over the Jordan in the presence of the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for possession. But if they will not cross over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We ourselves will cross over armed in the presence of the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us across the Jordan. So, the warning here by Moses is that they must follow through on their promise to, to engage in the battle. And, and Moses knows that this is important. And because he knows it's important, he passes this information on to the new leaders of Israel, Joshua and Eleazar. Because what's going to happen to Moses? He's going to die. Is he going to know if Reuben and Gad followed through? I mean, he will. But he's not on earth to be able to, 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 um, to see that happen. So as a result, he passes it on to the new leaders, Joshua, the, the kind of the the military and governing leader of the people, and then Eleazar, the priestly leader of the people, says make sure that they follow through on this promise that they've made. And then in verses 33 through 42, Moses agrees to give them the land east of the Jordan. So let's think about some application this morning for ourselves. Number one, we must engage in God's battle against sin. So we could just keep it generic and say that we're doing the same you know, we want to um, do what Israel did, which is we must engage in the battle. And for us, I think the battle is primarily against sin. We are not Israel, and God doesn't lead us through a theocratic ruler like Moses or Joshua. That is a God-appointed ruler who's meant to 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 draw us out of our troubles in, in that way. 
And certainly this passage does not call us to go into battle against our national enemies. That's not what we should learn from this passage. Neither are we to carry out capital punishment on those who cause us to sin, like what Israel did with the Midianites. The application for us is that we must engage in God's battle. But as we engage, we must recognize that the battle against the world and the flesh and the devil is ultimately whose battle? It's not our idea to fight these things. It's God's battle. And, and, and in this, we need to recognize that we, in ourselves, can't have ultimate victory over our enemies. Because we don't have the power to bring our enemies to, our, to their knees. Only God does. And so our job is to employ the means that God has given us to engage in the battle, to be an instrument of God. He is the commanding officer. We are his soldiers. Take, for example, our fight against Satan. Right? He is our enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. But the promise in Genesis 3.15 is that the seed of Eve will crush the head of Satan after the seed of Eve has been bruised on the heel. In other words, Satan's ultimate destruction is already planned by God and it's accomplished through God, through God's Son, who will be temporally wounded at the cross. So the ultimate victory over Satan is going to come at the hands of Jesus. But listen to Romans 16. There Paul says to the Roman Christians, which by extension also includes us, I would suggest, and he says, God will crush Satan under your feet. In other words, we are engaged in the battle that God will ultimately accomplish and that God will ultimately win. We are engaged in the battle. Somehow God uses us in this battle against Satan. And so how do we do this? How do we engage? For Israel, they were to engage in literal war. But that is not our calling. Instead, our engagement in the battle is to resist the devil. Right? Our, our, our enemies are not flesh and blood, are they? That's what Ephesians 6 says. But they are the rulers of the powers of this world, the demons and the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. They are uh, the demons and Satan himself. And our job is to resist the devil. Isn't that what James says? Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our job in the battle against Satan when he's telling about the armor of God is to resist, to stand, so that having done all, we will be able to stand firm. It's actually not to be offensive. We don't go on the offensive against Satan. Our job is to just stand our ground, hold our, our, our ground, that we do not give up. The battle against our enemies is God's battle. But we engage in the battle by following the orders of our commanding officer. And like with Israel, we are guaranteed to win the battle. We are overcomers when we persevere until the end by the strength that God supplies. We are not overcomers because of our efforts. We are not overcomers because of our inherent ability. We are overcomers by virtue of the blood of the Lamb, that, lamb that's applied to our account. Read Revelation 12 see this more clearly. So we must engage in God's battle against sin. Second application. It goes along with the second chapter that we looked at this morning. 
that we must recognize the seriousness of abandoning the work of God. We must recognize the seriousness of abandoning the work of God. The temptation for us when we come to Christ is to enjoy the spoils before the battle is over. But as long as we have breath, we have to recognize that the battle is not over. The battle still rages. As long as you have breath, you are fighting. You are warring against God's enemies. We are not in our homeland in a time of peace. We are on a battlefield away from our homeland, engaging in the battle, and we will be until we die. And so our abandonment of the work of God discourages other people. I don't have that for you, but but had it earlier. Our abandonment of the work of God discourages other people. It compels people to distrust God. And so we need to recognize that our, our actions affect more than just us. Right? How we live, we may think, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing trouble to myself and the consequences of my sin, or uh, I guess I'm going to have to live with those. But, but the reality is, is we actually are contributing to the discouragement of other people when we abandon the work of God. And then the second thing that we saw in chapter 32 is that our abandonment of the work of God is a sin against God. You know, we might like to think that, that, that my... I like to, might like to think that my actions only have consequences for me. My actions affect the people around me, don't they? When the two tribes saw the land that they desired, they thought it would be best for them to, to let the other ten tribes engage in the battle and, and kind of earn their land, but the abandonment of the two tribes of the work of God would have real and lasting effects on the ten tribes. And the good news is that the story ends well. I mean, we kind of saw this here that they promised to do this, but if you read through the book of Joshua, it's amazing that at the beginning and the end of Joshua, this story is recounted of their promise to go into the land. So in Joshua 1, you remember all the part where he says, um, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you'll meditate on it day and night. And then just two verses later, Joshua 1, 10 through 18, is Joshua talking to Reuben, Gab, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And they're saying, and he says to them, remember your promise, Remember what you told the Moses that you're going to actually follow through in this battle? Well, you need to do this. We're not over the, the Jordan yet, but you need to do this. They agree, said, yes, we're going to do this. They get over into the Jordan. They engage in all the fights. And when it's finally time for rest and, and apportionment of the land, at the very end of Joshua, in Joshua 22, Joshua commends them on behalf of God for their involvement calls them out specifically. You two and a half tribes, you kind of had your land and you could have abandoned us. It caused great distress and discouragement to the rest of us and probably all of us being wiped out, but you stuck to it. You were faithful. You did not abandon us. In what ways can we abandon the work of God? In what ways do we abandon the work of God without considering how it affects our relationship with other people or their relationship with God? I think the primary way that we do this is by abandoning the faith, obviously. right? If a person who claims to follow Christ and then turns away from Christ, that's going to have serious ramification on those people who saw him and, and worked alongside of him, right? He named the name of Christ and now he's turning away. Obviously, that person is probably not too concerned about, about other people. 
But the more probable way, the more realistic way that that would happen, obviously, in a true believer is that we might discourage other Christians by abandoning the church. That our decision to abandon the church of Jesus Christ is going to have serious ramifications on other Christians from continuing on. Now, keep in mind all of your right theology about how we each are individually responsible for our own sin. But at the same time, other people can have an effect on our sin, like Midian, for example, right? The women of Midian were held responsible for how they caused Israel to sin. Now, Israel is ultimately responsible for their sin. They shouldn't have done it. They still have stand guilty before God, right? So keep all that theology in mind. At the same time, recognize that your sin affects more than just you. For you to say, you know what? I've had this relationship and I'm done. I just, I'm not going to do this anymore. Your decision will discourage other Christians from continuing on. The reality is that we don't make decisions in a vacuum. We don't live as a Christian all alone. When we no longer see value in church attendance and no longer see value in praying for the church and no longer see value in encouraging other believers and in using our spiritual gifts for the edification of the church, then as we start to pull away with our removal, we are saying something about our commitment to God. And we're saying something about our faith and His means to provide spiritual growth because God says this is how it happens and we walk away. Before long, we don't even care how our actions will affect the faith of others. If you don't think this is true, just think about the times in which you have faced spiritual discouragement. Sometimes it happens because of trials that are coming and just feel like you're overwhelmed. But have you not been discouraged when a Christian turned away from the faith or, or, or a, a professing Christian turned away from the faith or when a, a genuine Christian walked away from their commitment to the church? I mean, there is real discouragement. It's unsettling spiritually, and it rocks you a little bit. So what do we do? Three things that I would suggest to you. Number one, cling hard to God. Cling hard to God so that even when people fall away, you stand firm. Okay, if all of our hope is on, you know, I, I can, my faith is only as strong as when people are here, then, then we're going to be really weak. Okay, that's not what I'm suggesting. So, so that when people fall away, our, folk, our eyes are still on God, right? I look to the hills. That's where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. And, and so while the, sh- the sands of, of trouble are shifting all around me and people are, are turning away, that's, that's okay because my God is still in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. So cling hard to God. Number two, praise God for faithful believers who are currently at your side. We are so good at looking at the negative, aren't we? We're constantly looking at all the bad things that are happening. We love to talk about them and commiserate them like a sword that we just continue like to scratch and, and pick at. Instead, we need to look around. Who are the faithful believers who love God and who are committed to His call? Who are the ones who are encouraging other Christians in the faith? Who are joyfully singing praises to God and praying for good things to happen? Who, who are reaching out to the lost? Who, who is growing in godliness? 
Praise God for those faithful believers and, and learn from them. Number three, recognize that your life as a Christian is not a life lived alone. In other words, guard your own heart. So when, when people turn away, we might say, well, man, that's terrible that they did that. But, but recognize that how could you not also have the possibility to turn away? It's kind of an awkward way to say it. But, but if they turned away, could you not turn away? Recognize that your life as a Christian is not a life lived alone. Instead, recognize yourself as what Jesus describes you, or as Paul describes you, as a part, a member of the body of Christ, interconnected with other members, interdependent. You need them and their spiritual gifts, and they need you and your spiritual gifts. And so you can't just say, well, I guess if I'm not a hand, then I have no value here, so I can just walk away. You cannot live on your own. No such thing as a lone ranger Christian, as my theology professor used to say. We are interdependent of one another. There is a battle going on. We must engage in the battle. We can't engage in the battle alone. We need to rely on God, and we need each other. Father, we do pray that you would occupy our lowly hearts and own them all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power, Lord. The, the sins that we commit start in our hearts. They start in our thoughts and our desires before long returning away from you, abandoning what we once enjoyed, once we, what we once took pleasure in. And Lord, I'm thankful for believers here who have been a constant source of encouragement to me and other members of this church. And I can think of countless times when when you have lifted me up spiritually because of believers who are faithful to the ministry of this church and, and who were um, praying for me and, and encouraging me along the way. And, and I'm grateful that you provide a church where I can and be encouraged. And I pray that I would be that source of encouragement to them as well. Lord, I pray that we would recognize our responsibility to engage in the battle. We can't sit on our hands. expect you to, to, uh, to win the battle for us as if we can just sit and do nothing, float down the lazy river of life. It's not biblical. And so instead, Lord, we help, pray that you would help us to engage in the battle and to recognize our part in the body of Christ, that each member is necessary to the working of the body. And so we are interconnected. We need each other. Some body parts are more prominent than others. They get more um, public notice and use. But all the members are necessary. And so we pray that that we would recognize um, the, the value that we have to the body of Christ. I pray that if there are some here who don't know Jesus as their Savior, that are not connected to the body of Christ, or kind of working their way through life trying to be accepted by you, that they would recognize their need to turn in faith and repentance. I pray that our church would be a place where love is displayed so that others would see our love and glorify you in heaven. They would know that we are Jesus' disciples by our love. We pray that we would grow in that. Lord, we know we not we are not where we ought to be. 
Continue to strengthen us <coughs> in the faith. Don't let us turn away. Continue to pursue us even when we fail. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 147, the matter.